How's everybody doing? Man, I tell you what, I, I just keep smiling thinking about the life course. You know, as Dan was talking about it, like we've got, we were talking about it this week at staff, and we're a little bit like wide-eyed and deer in the headlights because there's uh, probably double the, the amount of people engaged, signed up than, uh, than we expected. And it's not that we set our sights low. We were basing it on, uh, you know, past years and where we were in 2019 and uh, it's just, it's gone through the roof. Um, and so Dan's right. It's like, you know, we, if we've got more people, we need more money to pay, feed all these folks. Um, I mean, and what's, it's, what's funny is I remember there was uh, one person, actually, I'll call him out, Dan Trifoletti. He said, you know why I like the life course? And we were like, why? He's like, the food's awesome. And that was pretty much it. Like coming in, he's like, you know, you, you used to like dinner on the grounds, you know, grandma comes in with some grits and some chicken and things like that for church gatherings, right? Um, but to come in and you got Taco Lou week one, I mean, it's pretty awesome. And you, I mean, it gets, it just goes up from there. It's just like amazing. Uh, so man, I am excited about the life course. It is one of the things that uh, uniquely identifies us as a church. Uh, it's something different than uh, I've seen anywhere I've ever been in terms of uh, the way to invite people in, create a safe, you know, uh, just ground level place to talk about the things that actually matter in life, because we buzz around and we do a lot of things. We spend a lot of time, um, you know, on streaming, on devices, you know, going to work and doing tons of other things, and to just set aside time to really contemplate the questions of life um, really has drawn people in uh, to the life course, and we're super excited. If you're not signed up, please come. Just jam this room full of people. You guys are what makes the life course amazing. Uh, You guys are actually the soft, safe landing uh, for the people that are, you know, re-engaging with church maybe um, for, it's been 15, 20 years, or maybe it's the first time. Um, You guys are absolutely what makes it work. Christ in you, the hope of glory for the world. So definitely be at at the Life Course. Uh, Like Dan said, we are uh, back in the Come and Listen series. Um, There's the three people that are excited about that. Mom, I love you. Um, But the, no, there is, this is actually for many people, I I get more um, comments about this series. We've been doing it since 2014. It is a lot of people's uh, favorite. Um, And if you've not been around, the way that the Come and Listen series works, we have some teaching rhythms here. We were just coming out of a book of the Bible. We do more uh, verse by verse when we went through Romans. We kind of did that. took almost a year to do that. Uh, Sometimes we're in a series um, that's kind of a, you know, God's given us a vision for a season of the church. And then sometimes we're in this. this, this is the come and listen series. And we started in 2014. We started in Genesis right at the very beginning, verse one. Uh, and we've been traveling since 2014 and we're, we're now all the way up to Ezra. Uh, so if you if you're new and you're like, man, I have missed a lot. You're right. Uh, you have. <laughs> Um, so I want to get us caught up, and don't worry if you're, if you're new. We're, we're not going to be here for four hours, because I am going to start back in Genesis right now um, and get you caught up to Ezra, but it won't take long. Uh, so uh, the story starts out, you know, if you've, if you've opened your Bible right there, everything is breathed into existence by God. He breathes into the darkness, breathes into the, to the void. Let there be light, and creation continues and culminates with the creating of man and woman. Perfect community with God. They have an amazing, wonderful, beautiful relationship. Until we get to Genesis chapter 3, it starts out with, and then the serpent. And you know what happens there? Rebellion. They want to be their own God. They want to be the captain of their own ship. They want to run their own story. They want to create their own kingdom, and they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden 
two fiery angels at the east end, and they are not coming back in. Things get worse from there. It goes downhill to the point where God decides to flush the toilet on the whole thing. But there's one faithful guy, and things get a little bit better, and then they get a little bit worse, and then you have the Tower of Babel, and then God spreads people out, changes the way that people speak with one another and languages, and things get worse and worse and worse. But his plan of redemption was always in place, and he took a guy, surprisingly, out of a pagan land with a pagan father, and his name was Abraham. He said, look up at the sky. You'll see the stars in the sky. If you look at them and you number them, you'll realize that you can't. That is going to be your descendants. And these people will be my people, and I will be their God. And so you have Abraham. You have Isaac. You have Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. But over time, those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's over 400 years, which is really good news. But the really bad news is at this point, they're enslaved in Egypt. And then God takes one man, an unlikely guy who was retired. He's about 80 years old. He was a shepherd on a hill, sees a burning bush. He says, hey, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. And he asks him, he says, hey, I want, I want you to go to Pharaoh to let Pharaoh know that he needs to let my people go. And Moses says, I don't want to go tell Pharaoh to let the people go. I have a speech impediment. I'm old. I'm retired. I don't want to do it. He says, it's fine. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to send your brother Aaron along with you. So Moses says, okay, I'm going to go. He goes and tells Pharaoh. He meets with Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And God wants you to let his people go, and Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go. That's his labor force. And then there's 10 plagues, and Pharaoh says, the last plague, which is uh, the angel of death, he says, well, I better let the people go. And then he lets the people go and decides, oh, man, I shouldn't have let the people go. And then he begins to chase the people all the way up to the Red Sea. And then if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or, you know, older Charlton Heston, Moses raises his hands, and there's the parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites make it through. The Egyptians do not. And then one of the first worship songs of all time, the horse and rider fall into the sea. You can sing along with me. And that happens. And then we've got 40 years of wandering in the desert where they think, I might want to go back to Egypt. I might want to go back to slavery. It was better than wandering in the desert, but they're eating heavenly food. God's restoring them and doing amazing things for them, but they continue to complain. So they end up staying in the desert, wandering and not going into the promised land for 40 years. But then they finally get to the precipice of the promised land. Moses sends. So God transfers the mantle of authority to Joshua. And then we're entering into the book of Joshua, which is very uncomfortable to preach, by the way, because it's like Braveheart, but a lot harder, a lot more difficult, and a lot more butt-whooping that's going on in the book of Joshua. You get through Joshua, and it's kind of like scorched earth policy, and then you get into Judges, which becomes a lot more uncomfortable because it's the cycle of the Israelites ruining their opportunity for redemption. They go into sin. They rebel against God. They decide that they don't want God. And then they, are, they fall into the hands of their enemies. They cry out for mercy. God extends mercy in the way of a judge. And then it happens all over again and all over again and all over again and all over again. And then you see a small little story, a ray of light in the book of Ruth, where you see this guy Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer, this, this Moabite girl who is Ruth, which lets us know that this story is not just about the Jews. It's not just about Israelite, the Israelites, but it's about the whole earth. It's about all of redemption because she's a Moabite and she's now engrafted in and she's loved by God just like we're loved by God, just like the Jews were loved by God. And the story continues. We have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. This is the part of the story where the Israelites look around and they look at all the other lands and say, hey, we want a king like everybody else has got a king. And Samuel says, you've got a king. You've got the king of kings. And they say, no, we want an earthly king. So God says, okay, we'll give you an earthly king. And we'll see how that goes. He gives them Saul and Saul starts out pretty good. He's tall, he's good looking, leads the people well and he follows God. And then he peeks out here and then he begins to go downhill. And then David comes along and has a similar trajectory. He takes over for Saul. Saul chases him around. David ends up taking power. He's known as the best king 
over Israel of all time. But he also has his own little ark, starts in a, in a good place, peeks out, and then he begins to sink and go downhill after that. And then he hands the mantle off to who? Anybody know? Solomon, very good, you're hanging with me. He's handed it to Solomon, and Solomon is the wisest and the richest guy. He partied like Kanye, and he realized at the end of it, it doesn't get you anywhere. And if you read Ecclesiastes, he says, it is meaningless. Everything that I've gotten, all of the wealth, all of the wisdom, all the things, and he's, obviously he's handy with the ladies based on his marriage record, all the things that I've achieved along the way is meaningless. It is meaningless. And then he hands the mantle of authority off to one of his sons. That goes pretty, pretty much like, like you would think. It was a disaster. Disaster. Rich kids, right? All of a sudden, the kingdom is divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they are against one another. And then we see that the northern kingdom doesn't survive for very long, and the Assyrians, who were the world power at the time, they come and get them in around 930 BC, and the northern kingdom is in captivity. And then not many years later, at 722 BC, there's the Babylonian captivity, where Judah is now the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom Judah are now both in Babylonian captivity. When we go back forward and we look at the book of Daniel, we'll kind of see an individual story of what that looks like. But we're going to move past that because now we are right at the beginning where we're going through, we've gone through all of the kings in uh, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, 40 of them in all. There's about eight. Uh, we're supposed to say good kings, but I would call them medium kings, right? They didn't do that well. But now we're in captivity and it's Babylonian captivity. And where we find ourselves in the book of Ezra is where the Persian kingdom now takes over. And that is where we are in Ezra chapter one. All right, we are all caught up. Now, just a little context of where we are in Ezra chapter one. Like I said, you've got, what's, what's amazing about where we find ourselves and Cyrus who's taking over as the Persian king defeats the Babylonians that years, many, many years before, Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophets, said that there was going to be a king that was going to take over. He was going to loosen the belts of all of the other kings, the Assyrian kings, the Babylonian rulers and governors, and that he would allow the Israelites to go back to their homeland, allow them to go back to Jerusalem and allow them to rebuild the temple. And they didn't even know. These, these prophets had no idea that any of this was going to, like they, they had, all they had was the vision that God gave them. None of this had taken place yet. None of this had happened yet. They even state his name. They even state his name. And right at the very top, if you go back to Ezra 1, we don't have this because we're jumping into Ezra chapter 3, but Ezra 1, it says, in the first year, of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put in writing, this is what the king of Cyrus of Persia says. And he goes on to say, hey, the Lord of God of heaven has given me all of these lands. I'm the ruler of all of planet earth and I am going to send the Israelites back. I am going to release them. I'm going to allow them to build the temple of God. And it just represents and shows the degree of God's sovereignty over any ruler on planet Earth. He decreed it years before, 75, 85, maybe 100 years before. He said, there's going to be a king. His name will be Cyrus, and I will allow him to be the one that lets my people go and sends them back to their homeland. So that's where we find ourselves as we get into, if you look at Ezra chapter 3, this is, this is a, kind of the beginning of the story of the Israelites being back in their homeland, of them being back after being in captivity for, for so, so long. And it says, 
in uh, verse 1, when the seventh month had come and the Israelites had settled in their towns and the people had assembled together as one in Jerusalem. So the people are back now. And one of the things that, that happened is in uh, 586 BC, they went into Babylonian captivity in 609 BC. And then about 586, the Babylonians just destroyed that. They took all the, the cool stuff out of the temple, anything that was worth anything, and then they just laid it to bare. I mean, absolute desolation. I mean, just absolutely destroyed everything you could possibly imagine, all the way down to the foundation. So that's what they've returned to in Jerusalem. But they're now settling into their towns. They're getting them, you know, they're unpacking all of their stuff. And immediately, they come together as one in Jerusalem. Now, which is crazy because think about it. If, you, if you've tracked the timeline, which was probably hard as fast as I went through that, but first Babylonian captivity, or the first captivity, the Assyrian captivity is 930 BC. The, the division of the kingdoms was just a little bit before that. It's been about 400 years since the northern and the southern kingdom have been united in any way, and this is happening right now. So they're together as one in Jerusalem. If you jump down to verse 6, it says, On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. I stopped here as I was reading this passage because I, I started to think about it. I went and looked, and, and what, what they were doing was the, the Feast of Tabernacles was happening. This, this Day of Atonement was getting ready to happen as well. So this is their, they're, they're getting ready to have like a worship service. They're getting ready to come together to sing the songs of God's faithfulness. They're getting ready to come together to repent of their sin. They're getting ready to come together and weep before the Lord because they've been away for so long. This is a worship gathering. And I, I just thought, there's no foundation in the temple. There's nothing there yet. And worship started before anything else. In the middle of the desolation, in the middle of the rubble, they went to worship. And if you look and you continue to look at this, it says in verse 11, after they laid just the foundation, they, they, the, all they, they put is, the, we get, we're getting the floors in. We're going to get the floors in. We're going to make sure everything is solid and people can walk on this. And they had another worship service. And they said, and they sang together. It says, with the praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. You can imagine how they felt that some of them didn't even know what it was like to, to be an Israelite. Some of them grew up, they grew up in Babylonian captivity. Like they, for all practical purposes, culturally, many of them who had returned or that were even in the area, the area was known as, as Babylonian. That's all they knew. So some of these kids, some, even some of these adults are singing these words and, and they're saying, he is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. goes on, it says, And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. I mean, you read the commentary about why these guys were crying. It's probably on multiple levels. One, they were just overwhelmed. 70 years, right? You know, again, people were, were born and, you know, they, they were born into captivity. But there was people that were still alive that could look back and they could remember the original temple. Now, some of them, the commentary says, were, were weeping and crying because they thought, we'll never reach the heights at which we were before. Solomon's temple, the way that it was built, the way that it was structured, I mean, my man had some cash money. 
and they, they, did, they did things. I mean, that thing was unbelievable. And in some ways, they, they're correct from what we find out about the temple. It, it, in terms of opulence, in terms of the amount of gold in the temple, it was, it was not like the other, the other temples. So maybe some of them were like, we're never going to get back to where we were. But most commentary says that there was just this weeping, like, I can't believe we're back here. I can't believe this is, this is what's, what's in front of us. I can't believe this place is in rubble. It's been laid bare. I love this, what it says in verse 13. just made my mind think about um, how loud this must have been. It said, no one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Because the people made so much noise. And it says, and the sound was heard from far away. I mean, this must have been a pretty crazy worship gathering. I mean, it must have been. I mean, worship was awesome just now. I, I thought it was really good. But this one probably was a little bit different, you know? Like, you know, we, we, you know, we had a rough week, but these people are in the rubble. I mean, they are in it. And I was just thinking as I was reading this passage this week, and I just thought about us walking in here. And I thought about each section you know of seats in in this room and who would be walking in here I thought about my own heart my own family that would be here and the people that are are in the room and I just thought who is walking in to worship in the rubble who's coming in 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 the circumstance of life has heartache it has loss it has trouble because I was thinking okay what's the rubble in our life because I think it's strange in some ways for anyone to worship in the rubble. The fact that, you know, I'm, I'm practical. I'm thinking, why not build the altar first? Like, my, why not get everything done? Like, I'm a, like, let's unpack all the stuff. Let's hang the pictures on the walls, and then we'll watch TV, right? Um, you know, once we get unpacked in the house and we get everything in, in place, nothing was, was happening. None of the stuff, the, the, the plans were in place. There was people... You know, getting ready to think, you know, okay, we're all going to come together. We're going to build this thing. And they do. But before all that took place, they sang. I mean, I think about even in our culture, the way that we think about church. Like, you know, and, and I'm thankful that we realize and recognize that church is not a building. Like, this is great. We are thankful that we are in here and that God has given us this space. I think we're strategically positioned as a church to, to reach our community, all of that stuff. But we are the church. The human, if, if for whatever reason this building was no more, we would still exist as a church. God, has, he's, he's weaving us together with common ground. But it still surprises me that they would not do anything and they would immediately draw everyone together to worship in the rubble. And then I just, I just thought about who, what, why would anybody worship in the rubble? And why did they do this? Why was the decision made by Zerubbabel, the priest, and Ezra, the head priest? Why, why, why was this there? As they come back, as they're the ones, the spiritual leaders, you'll find out later, Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were written together. They were separated way later into two separate, separate books. And Ezra was the, the, the priest's guy, and Nehemiah was the businessman. I mean, that's the person that's, that's in the secular world, but both equally important. I love that they're both represented in the story because that's the way that we operate. Sometimes we're like, oh, that's the person that does all the stuff for God, and that's the person that makes money. No, God uses both of them in a powerful way. But this is Ezra's story, and he's leading the people and says, this is what we're going to do. 
They pulled together all the worship leaders, all the band members, all the electric guitars, bass players, drummers, all the people, and said, we are going to light this place up. We are going to worship. We are going to thank God that we are back. We are going to thank God even before everything looks normal again. Even in the midst of the rubble, we're going to worship. Even in the midst of not knowing what the future looks like. Even in the midst of still being a little bit nervous because Cyrus is still in power. And he's been nice lately, but we're, we're just little old Israel. We're just little old Jerusalem. We're going to worship in the middle of the rubble. So my question is, and the question is today, I think, is, you know, why would they worship in the rubble? And why would we worship in the rubble? I mean, the first thing that I would, I want to, we have to define before we get into it is what is the rubble? And I would just say the, the rubble's trouble, right? <laughs> rubble for you and I is trouble. It's the things that we walk through. It's the uncertainty. It's the heartache and the pain. It's the divorce. It's the cancer. It's the things that we, we wonder, how in the world does God allow suffering in the world? But we look at the story of God. We see the rubble all over the pages of Scripture. God's not surprising us with the, with the things that we see on, on planet Earth. And he's clear about what our existence looks like on planet Earth in his word way before we've lived it. So the rubble's trouble. Worship, what is worship? So what would worship in the rubble look like? Well, worship is our response to what matters most. It's more than just singing. Yeah, that's what we see here. But worship is our response to what matters most on any front. How do we respond to what we, and, and you can tell what's, what matters most to people. Look at their bank account. You can see what they worship. You go to football games and see somebody in church kind of just straight laced like this. And then all of a sudden you see them at a football game with a shirt off and letters on it going, woo, and you see what they love, right? You, you, you get the picture. Worship is our response to what matters most. So why worship in the rubble? The first thing I have here is worship restores unity. That's exactly what's going on here. It says right at the very top, it says, they came together and had settled in their towns and the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Again, 400 years, none of them, like they, they, they hadn't been together like this, especially the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. They felt like they were two separate people and now they're back together again as, as one people. And Ezra knew and the high priests knew and the people that were leading knew that in the middle of the rubble, in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of the place that they are, this is a place that we could, even though we're all coming together, that could be the place where we complain. They, they knew the story. They knew the cycle of the past. They knew, what it, they knew what even the cycle was way back in the book of Judges, before the, the kingdom era. They knew that their tendency was to abandon God, to walk away, to hit the eject button when trouble came. To say, God's not for us anymore. Let's engage in whatever we want. Let's make ourselves comfortable. They, they, they knew that disunity could happen in the middle of strife. Because that's what happens, right? I mean, teams fall apart when they lose, right? I mean, I think about Florida State University and their football team in 2013, <laughs> right? I mean, they were unified, brother. In 2013, nothing could go wrong. Everybody was so happy. They were, they were a brotherhood. And they're like, Jameis, go eat your crab legs. It's great. You know, they didn't care. It didn't matter. And then you get into 2016, 2017. You, I mean, you listen to Kirk Herbstreet on ESPN going, man, they have a culture problem. There is so much division on this team. They're firing coaches left and right. I mean, it's just all breaking apart. Why? Because in the midst of losing, in the midst of trouble... 
There's division. And God was so smart. And the, and the people that were leading, these, these worship leaders and these priests, these, these preachers said, we are going to come together and we are going to worship together. We are going to unify under one name, under one God. We are going to do the thing that, that, that puts us together. You know, I think about even couples that get divorced in the middle of strife. When a child is sick, when, 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 when a child dies in a family, or just a, a, a kid goes off the rails as a, as a prodigal, just going crazy. The divorce rate skyrockets statistically. Why? Trouble. It disunifies. The blame game starts. Lots of different things happen. And here you've got some amazing wisdom that they stay unified. I mean, what happens? I mean, think about, think about the, the going through the pandemic. Everybody thought, this is what everybody thought. Oh my goodness, we have a common enemy. You know, this little bug, this COVID-19. We're all going to be unified against the, the nasty bug COVID. And then the election happened. And then all the other stuff happened. And what happened? People hated each other. They didn't know they hated each other. I mean, disunity left and right. People left the church as COVID hit, in the middle of the election, even after the election. People like, I can't even sit. I can't even look at the back of their head. I can't be here. I know who they voted for. I saw it on Instagram, right? In the middle of the rubble, in the middle of trouble, there's disunity. But God is bigger than all of that. And God calls us together in this format right here. Like some people are like, well, you don't need church. You can have, you know, you could just, you know, travel on your own solo with you and your buddies and you know, get together, and every once in a while you have a Bible study, and those are great. You should, you should do that. We should be meeting together with people. We should be, you know, in fight clubs with a, with a handful of people, praying for one another, studying the Bible together. But man, we should not forsake the gathering of the saints, the unification of uni unifying our voices together to sing that Christ is magnified, that he died, he rose again, and it's in me, in the middle of my trouble, in the middle of my rubble, even though on this side of heaven, that might be my story, that I will rise just as he rose with him in glory. I want to sing that together with all the people around me. We need that encouragement in the rubble, and it unifies us. Romans 15, 5 says this, May the God, this is the Apostle Paul saying the same thing, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude, it's the unifying, it's the blood of Christ unifying you together in humility toward one another. Same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind, a bunch of different people, one mind, one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that passage is on our website because I, when I think about who we are as a church we want to unify. We want to sing. We want to raise our voices. We want to unify with one voice, with one heartbeat, with one mind. We want to all say together that we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and the best news ever. And we want to carry it to the world around us. And being present together promotes unity and fights division. The second thing is, is worship is warfare against idolatry. And these guys knew it. They knew, based on their story, that they're prone to wander. It started in the Garden of Eden, right? What do we say? Chapter 3, and then the serpent. And they thought, you know, it would be a good idea. You know, God's cool and all, but I kind of want to do my own thing. You know, I want to be the boss. I want to live my own life. I wanna, I, there's too many things that are tangible. 
you know, that, that I can experience. There's too many things that, are, that, are, that, are, that I can engage in down here that, that are fun. They're, that they're, I, I want to do this. I want to go this direction. I want to be the captain of my own ship. I want to steer this thing. I, wanna, I can do this on my own. These guys knew that humans, specifically their own people, were prone to wander. We sing it, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, Lord, I love. Right? We, we, we wander as people. And when we, when we end up in the rubble, when you end up in trouble, when you end up with heartache, you end up with confusion, when you end up with a future that you don't know what it's going to be, when we end up in the pressure cooker, you're gonna, the choice meter goes crazy. It's like all of a sudden you have, you have a choice. You can fill the, the gap in our lives that God put there on purpose. The eternity that's set in the hearts of men becomes very evident in the rubble. Like in everyday life when things are going good, we don't, we don't realize that there's something missing, that all of us need something more, right? Like there's something that all of us were built with. God put it, this nagging existential itch. That's why famous people get to the end of their rope. They get to the end of life. They get, I've got all the fame, all the money, all the stuff, and I still don't feel satisfied. Why? Because God put eternity in the hearts of men. We were meant to be with him. We were not, you were created by and for Jesus. Colossians 1, it's there. It is so evident in the midst of suffering. It's so evident in the midst of the rubble. It's so evident as you're walking through divorce. It's so evident when a relationship falls apart. It's very evident when you fail out of school, when you can't get your stuff together, that there's a, there's a gaping hole. It, it just gets, it gets wider and wider in the middle of the rubble. And you notice it. And you're either going to fill it with God, you're gonna fill it with what you're supposed to, what it was created for, or you're gonna fill it with something else. You're either going to worship God or you're going to worship something else. These guys were prone to idols, and so are you and me. We don't dismantle idols. You can't. Tim Keller says, you don't dismantle. What you do is you have to, there has to be a replacement. You've got to put the proper thing back in its place. It's like you can destroy the idol all you want, but you destroy the idol, another one's just going to pop back in there. There has to be a replacement. There has to be this this thing that happens, we replace, we don't just dismantle. You see, this story is a homecoming, but it's less about the place and it's more about the heart of the people. And idolatry is simply when we want something or we love something more than God. Just like I was saying, you know, worship is our response to what matters most. And it's very easy for us if we look to see what it is that we worship. And if we're not leaning towards God, we're looking for something to save us from what's making us miserable. We're looking for something to pull us out of the rubble. Rather than coming to Jesus or receiving his love to fulfill us, we find other things. We find approval. We find comfort, success, safety, or security. We find something that will fill it. Money, sex, relationships. Somebody telling us we're pretty, right? We, we, we find something to fill it. And they knew that worship was warfare against idolatry. They knew that that gaping hole was going to exist right there in the middle of the rubble. When that choice comes down. It's interesting, you know, when you, 
look at statistics. I, I've done student ministry for, you know, probably I've spent more time in student ministry than any other singular ministry. And you, you realize as you're doing it, middle schoolers will come to all your stuff. Like, they just come to stuff. They're just glad to get out. They're like, man, I am 12. I can't wait to get out of the house. Like, they're just ready to be somewhere. And they, it, that's why they're so crazy and drive you nuts. They come in here and they're like, Wee! You know, they're just doing things that they can't even control themselves. You know, they're just going crazy. And then all of a sudden, about soft, midway sophomore year, junior year, you see kids disappear in high school. And why? Why do you think? Choice. They can, like... Middle school, parents are like, thank you, Jesus. There's something for two and a half hours. Get out of the car and walk in that building. Whew, you know, high school kids, what? They can drive. They, they now can look, okay, I can go engage with God, engage with the people of God, engage with the friends that are connected to God, or I can do my own thing. And I'm not knocking, I mean, I, uh, kids sometimes make choices because your youth group's terrible. I mean, there's like, it's terrible there. Um, but many times it's, Something else has reached the pinnacle. Popularity, my friends, just comfort, just a, a break from homework, whatever it is that's nagging at, at the heart. And all of a sudden, they make a choice. They just stop coming. They stop engaging with the things of God and they start doing their own thing. They start engaging in other things. They prioritize sports. Or they prioritize friends. They prioritize popularity. They prioritize parties. They prioritize, and then they don't even want to come in here because they feel guilty. They're like, man, I used to be here and now I'm doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. And they come here and they sweat and they feel weird and they're like, oh, and they just feel like, I don't want to be here anymore because they've made a choice. Now, I'm not knocking them. I think they're the outward expression of how we all operate in life. Because we get, we get in this place of the rubble, and all of a sudden, we have a choice. How are we going to fill the gap? What are we going to worship? Where are we going to go? What are we going to run towards? What's it going to look like for us? Because you have all these moments in life where, where life changes dramatically and quickly. You know, empty nesters, when all your kids go off to school. I'm, you know, I'm not too far away from that. Well, mine keep coming home. I see. You guys are sitting there. You're messing with me right there. Um, yeah, they, they keep coming home, and I love it. I, I like them at home. You know, somebody said to me the other day, it's like, you know, kids used to leave at 17, 18 years old. I mean, that was me. It was like, you're gone. Get out the house. You got to go. Um, and now it's like 26. They're still home. Um, but I love it. I love, I love my people, you know. Maybe that's kind of the way it was back in the olden days. Um, sorry, distracted. But we're, we, we look at our lives and we get in these places that may, maybe it doesn't look like the rubble to you, but all of a sudden there's, there's an emptiness, you know? The empty nester feels this gap. They feel this loss or a relationship dismantles. Maybe you're not in that place of divorce, but gosh, it's, it's just not right. Something's happening. And you got a choice in that moment, in the middle of the rubble of your relationship. What, what is it that you're going to run to? And goodness, people run. I've been pastoring a church for a while. People run to a lot in the middle of that that's not God. And God's speaking right now into the room, just saying, you've got an opportunity here to run to life and not death. You've got an opportunity to run towards me. I was what you were created for. Don't walk. Run in that direction. And it could be anything. Coming out of a dark season. Loss of a job. What is it that you're going to run to? Are you going to worship? Yeah, all of us are going to worship. But what are we going to worship? Who are we going to worship? Where are we going to go? 
And these guys knew that is where we needed to be. Thirdly, worship helps me remember that this is not my home. You know, you read verse 12 again. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud, and they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Worship is a... They, they knew that worship was going to re-engineer the mind and the heart. I think on planet Earth, we, we hope to make things comfortable. We hope to set ourselves up so that we can ride things out down here. We, we don't even look really that far into the future. We're just, we, need the, we need to get things the way. That, I need my cable installed. I just called Comcast. They are the devil. Um, you're getting things set up, right? Like th- This is how I know that this is not my home, Comcast. Um, there's heaven and there'll be... You know, high-speed internet forever for free. Um, But these guys realized it. And in the middle of that, they needed their heart re-engineered. They needed to know, hey, my expectation of what happens down here needs to change. I need to know that this is not my home. I want to get glimpses of not what's going to happen down here. I want to get glimpses of being with God in glory. And so right here in the rubble, we're going to get a glimpse. We're going to come together and we're going to get a glimpse. We're going to lay the landscape here. We're soon going to lay the foundation. We're going to put the altar in. We're going to put the walls up. We're going to create a house of God. We're going to, we're going to create a glimpse that will always remind us that this is what we're after. We're after him. We're after his spirit. We're after his presence. We're after being together, unified by his presence. We are not after all of this other stuff. As it says in Colossians 3, since you've been raised with Christ, set your your mind, your heart, your soul on things above, not on the earth. Why? Because if you fall in love down here, it will take you out. And then you get into the rubble and you wonder, where is God? Why? And God's like, hey, I just, I've tried to remind you that everything down here is fragile. It has the tendency to become rubble. And there's only one thing that won't. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. It's two things. It re-engineers our heart. Worship re-engineers our heart. It moves us to a place of laying the landscape the way that it needs to be laid. You know, I love that, even thinking about that. Like, I love, I love landscaping. I don't know what it happens in your 40s and 50s, but, you know, grass. I dig it. I don't know what it is. Not that kind of grass. Um, <laughs> But I just stand and I stare at it, man. I just look at it. And I want to, you know, you guys know I've been renovating the house. I got other people doing my yard and I ride by and I'm like, I wouldn't do that. I drive off, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I've taken out plants that I planted like, you know, before I moved, right before I moved out. I'm like, you know, that's a a bird of paradise. It's like this big. Why would you throw that in the dumpster? My majestic palm. I'm just like super sad. But this is the opportunity to, to, to landscape, like where we invest. I spent so much time in that yard. And really, God is really leading us to this place. Like, hey, let's cultivate the church to be the bride, to be this city on a hill that, that reaches the world, that gives us a glimpse that, that heaven is coming. Heaven is coming. This is not our home. The brokenness. We try to shroud it in something, but we walk around and there's, there's brokenness, there's sickness, there's divorce, there's cancer, there's people that are sinning against one another. There's not, this isn't, this isn't God's intent. It's coming. His redemption is coming. But we need to be reminded that this isn't our home. You know, 
Years ago, there was a, a young lady that, that went to our church, and she was, and we knew her really well. She was a friend of our family and, um, and was married and, and used to come in and was lightly engaged in church. She used to sit in the back, uh, all, had the best personality. We used to you know, have dinner with them and, and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. Um, and then all of a sudden went through a, a, just a brutal separation and divorce. Like you can think of the worst circumstances. That was, that was it. Um, and uh, as she was walking through it, it was, it was, this is the rubble, right? This is, the, this is everything's been laid bare. And then on the other side of that, that's all that was left. Like it's starting over. It's like we're, we're here and we got to rebuild something, a life. But where that goes from here is, you know, there was a choice, you know. And in the midst of that, it was as if there was a wake up that, okay, this place, this earth, this broken planet we're on is, is, this is not my home. This is not the end of the story. And she was, again, she wasn't somebody that, would, that was like into worship. She'd just kind of do her thing, come to church, you know, come late, leave early. And then went through the rubble, the tragedy. And it was so crazy to watch her in that season move from the back of the, the house. Not that anybody in the back's like the worst people, like got all this. But just, to, just as an illustration, just engagement. She was in the front. She couldn't get close enough to where worship was happening. Cried every time. Hands in the air. Was just absolutely raptured towards God. And I remember we were doing a college trip to a conference in Atlanta. And she was like, I want to go. She wasn't a college student. She was you know, close to 30 years old. She's like, I want to go. I'm not in college ministry. I just, I want to go. And like, she just wanted to tag along. She wasn't like, wasn't about ministering to college students. She's just like, I want to be there. I want to be there. She was like, oh, any environment where I could get a glimpse of heaven, I want to be there. And I remember we're all, there was probably 15 of us, maybe 12 of us. And she was down at the end of, end of the row and, and worship was happening. It was just a song about Jesus, just so centrally about who he was. And I think everybody that was with, was with us just couldn't, they knew her story and, and she's got this look on her face like just, I, I've never seen joy like that. And tears, like just coming down and just standing. She couldn't get high enough to, to just reaching up almost to say, Daddy, hold me. This is the best feeling I've ever felt. And I was just thinking about, I remember it being at the end of my road, it was just, just weeping, just thinking about her story. I'm like, how can you be in the rubble like that? How can you be like that? How can you have gone through a uh, humiliating divorce? I mean, in my heart, I'm thinking, she, this is the moment when people abandon, like, God hates me, or he doesn't exist. And the opposite was taking place. She was closer to Jesus than she ever had been. And I'm not saying you have to walk through tragedy to get close to Jesus. But I'm telling you, God will use tragedy to, to hold you tight and, and draw you back to Him. And it will give us a glimpse and a picture and a clarity in the rubble. You will, you will, you will see in the rubble who's with you. Jesus is in the rubble. I mean, nobody knows rubble better than Jesus. I mean, Golgotha, the hill that he died on was the hill of the skull, was just a big trash pile of rubble. And there's such clarity in the rubble, the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about the, the thief that 
looked over at Jesus and like, in the middle of the rubble, it just got clear to him for the first time. I mean, he's about to be done. Like he's got one shot at it. And right there in the middle of the rubble, he looks over and says, I wanna be with you in, in paradise. Don't, don't forget me, I know who you are. The soldier that looked up for hours at Jesus and then when the sky went dark and he gave away his life, he's like, surely this is the, this is the Son of God. Clarity in the rubble be foggy in everyday life, but in the rubble, things get so clear. I don't know where you are or what, what God's doing, but out of the rubble, out of the ashes comes worship. God's speaking to somebody today to say this, your rubble is not the end of the story. Your trouble is not the end of the story. Your hurt and your heartache is not the end of the story. He's here. His presence is here right now. He's right in the middle of your story, right in the middle of your trouble, leading you home. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love that you are relentless, that over and over again, as many times as we've walked away, as many times as the trouble has gotten overwhelming, you come in to restore, you come in to help us. And you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, all the way out the other side. Just come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.